Welcome everyone to Business Growth on Purpose. My name is Jose Palomino. I'm CEO of Value Prop Interactive. And it is my great pleasure every week to be interviewing experts from around the world, owners of other B2B businesses, and sometimes just sharing some of my personal insights from decades of helping businesses grow on purpose. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody, Jose Palomino with another episode of Business Growth on Purpose. And today's guest is Lisa Smith. And Lisa is an expert in creating value in sales situations, showing people how to create value, how to overcome some head trash in terms of what's keeping them from selling more proactively and more effectively. And really digging into some of the things that, especially in anything entrepreneurial, owner-led, things that you should be looking out for to get your sales going. So let's join Lisa right now. Well, welcome, Lisa, to Business Growth on Purpose. Hello. Thank you for having me, Jose. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, for our audience, uh, Lisa, if you just give us a little context on what you do and who you do it for primarily. Certainly. So uh, I am a sales coach and consultant, and I work primarily with female executives and BIPOC executives either working uh, on their own businesses or within corporate America. And that takes a variety of, uh, of um, things, but it's really about applying a sales mindset to mm -hmm. your business activities. Okay, so sales mindset. So there's a few things we're gonna get into today, but I, I, well, let's just expand on that, right? Because you know, somebody listening might say, well, wait a second, you know, if you're in business, de facto, you have a sales mindset, no? Yeah, or is no, that not necessarily I would say true? no, right, no, not true. So here, here's the thing about sales that we all can admit. It's like the dirty four-letter word, okay? No one likes to think about sales when they do think about sales, specifically decoupled from things like marketing activities or revenue, talking about those things. They tend to think about that, oh, it's aggressive, it's smarmy, it's, it's, it's you know, it's a, I'm a nuisance, and it's not about that at all. So my theory is that everyone is actually selling all the time. They're just not thinking about it in that context because selling, especially in B2B, is about relationship building. It's about solving problems, providing solutions. Yes, there's a monetary aspect to that, but it's so much more than that. And I think people limit their mindset to be like, oh God, I, you know, I, I hate sales. I'm not good at sales. I don't, you know, it's it's not about that at all. Okay. So what? So interesting. So like when you when you frame it as it's all about finding opportunities for alignment, for creating value and so on, which I'm a big believer in and I'm, I'm yes. right with you on that. But there is something to be said, especially in an entrepreneurial context where often the owner is the primary sales yes. engine. Right. Yes. So there are some things you have to do to make sales happen. You could say you could try to be Mr. Alignment all day long, but somewhere yes. you have to No, you have to pick up the phone. You have to go to a trade it's show. It's true. So so what have you found to be like the number one or two most uh, things that cause the greatest fear when ah. you talk to somebody about selling? Because I'm really picturing that owner operator of a B2B business where yes. they are the frontline yes. rainmaker. Yes, 100%. So two things I find. Most of those individuals consider themselves introverts. 
And because they consider themselves introverts, they don't like initiating conversations. Once they're in a conversation, they're fantastic. Or if they're one-on-one, they're fantastic, but they really fear talking to a larger group of people. So I talk a lot about that. Actually, there are many ways I believe, and I'm not the only person who believes this, Matthew Pollard wrote a book on it, that introverts make the best salespeople because it's about actually asking great questions and just listening, Mm -hmm. not necessarily talking. So people fear being in that environment right? Whether it's Zoom or in person, because they, they it's awkward, they don't know what to ask, they don't know what to say. So there's very simple tools that we can use to kind of get around that. And the other thing they fear, number one thing, they fear follow-up. Because follow-up is where they get this perception that I'm being pesky, I'm being intrusive, mm-hmm. I'm just being, you know what I mean? I'm being obnoxious. And could you be that if you follow up? too much or in the wrong way? Absolutely. But there are simple processes and procedures that you can use that basically just say, hey, I just wanted to remind you we had a great conversation or just to stay top of mind. Because the thing that we forget, especially in B2B, there are a million things going on in our life. And even if we have a really big problem we have to solve and we had a great conversation, you might be the right solution. We forget. We forget that we, we talked about that. We're moving on to something else. We might be fighting a fire, right? So I think it's about initiating those conversations. If you don't know what to say or, you know, and they hate small talk, all that good stuff, and it's follow-up. Okay. Well, let me, let me dig in on follow-up a little bit because the way you, you, you framed it from the beginning, I think is really powerful. Um, you know, in a way I've tried to coach salespeople in my career has been you, what you're doing in sales is you're providing a necessary and desirable service, which is you're right. providing information and options for somebody who's looking for information and options is pretty right. simple. Right. So follow-up is in many ways a great kindness because like you said, I left that conversation. I know that person could help me, but oh, the phone's ringing and my emails are blowing up and I got to deal with that. So when a week later, that person pings me again and say, hey, by the way, just this is the information you asked for. I'm going, man, I'm so thankful they reached out because exactly weeks would have gone by and I do need to solve that problem. So exactly. it's actually a service. Right. Sales as a service. There you go. There. So, <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's a, it's a thought. Now, now you mentioned, you know, in your practice, and I do want to touch on this a little bit, working, let's say, with a lot of women leaders, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. obviously, it's not like we're not in the 1960s, women are in business, they make right. executives and so on. Right. But, but is there, have you found and uh, in, your, in your work and practice that there are other, for lack of a better term, other head trash uh, that oh, gets yeah. in the way of women leaders maybe doing some of these activities? Yeah, 100%, 100%. And a lot of it is societal. We just have to be honest, okay? This is just the way that our society works, primarily in the United States or in Western civilization. But it it is, there's a ton of head trash, right? There is uh, um, all of these sort of unwritten um, kind of rules and mores about what we're, the way we're supposed to act, as women in, in business, right? And it's evolved over time. So when I started working in corporate America in the 80s, you know, we basically had to look and act like men. That was the way that we needed to be seen and heard and recognized. And, and things have adapted a lot over time. And one of the things that I, I love to talk about that comes up inevitably is this idea of imposter syndrome. And um, I just wanna talk about this. I'm really passionate about this because I don't believe, I believe that everyone, it doesn't matter who you are, what color, race, gender, sex, creed, 
has periods in their life where they have a lack of confidence or they don't feel like they are as prepared as they should be, right? I mean, that is being a human. Sure. That, that is being a human being. But this idea that imposter syndrome is a sickness that needs to be cured and the way that it's been kind of manifested in our, in our particular, in our business culture right now, I have a problem with because it's as if you, you know, many women suffer from imposter syndrome because they don't believe that they're, they should be where they're at, right? And it's really about a lack of confidence. Uh, and it's, it's not a, a lack of something. It, it's just basically understanding that you do belong there, even though no one in the room, it looks or, or talks like you, right? And, and it's a, a hump to get over. But that is some of the biggest some confidence, some of the biggest issues I deal with from, from a sales mindset perspective, for sure. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is, you know, having been mentored and worked alongside some really top sales performers, um, there are some that are just outright, almost, you know, psychopathically self-confident. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> right. You know, but a lot of them really, you know, they, everybody, you look, you're 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 as good as your last day right so like you know yeah. last yesterday i had a great meeting i closed the deal i'm you know i it's like you hear queens thinking we are the champions of the world right <laughs> right right in the backdrop and then and then there's the the but then the, you got beat up on a deal you were sure you're going to bring in by the end of the quarter and it mm. doesn't happen for any for reasons you couldn't even account for right and now you say boy i really suck you know i'm not good at this yeah. and you go through those things so I think sometimes the, 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 the struggle with confidence is, is also, you said the, the phrase before, it's just being human. It's like, yeah. we, we all deal with that again, except for the psychopathically. Right. 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 <laughs> they're hardwired. They're Teflon, wild. nothing. Yeah. Nothing. nothing right. Too. I mean, I've yeah. met a few of those, but yeah. you wonder like what deep down is that yeah. really, is that just posturing or what? Right. Right. So, right. Uh, so anyway, uh, so, so one of the things that I wanted to spend a little time with you on, you know, so, so there's kind of this head game in sales, which is great. I love that. And that's its own topic. Yeah. But one of the things we talked about in, our, in kind of our pre-conversation is this issue of pricing. Yes. Let me frame that a little bit, I think, uh, for us to dig into. Okay. So especially in small companies where they don't have access to a lot of market data, like large corporations are paying tons of money to Gartner or Forrester, yes. whatever the market research firm, they know where the competitors are price position product by product. They, they, they have it on a giant wall chart, right? but small 10, 15, $20 million company or a professional service firms, they don't know mm -hmm. like what's right. So, so when we look at pricing, not knowing can make me a Priced way too low because I'm lacking confidence. I think, boy, yes. if, I, I, if I blow up this deal, I'll, you know, by being too out of whack, um, or just I don't, I don't really know that I'm creating the value necessary to win the business. Mm -hmm. So, what is your counsel for somebody who doesn't have that kind of super sharp corporate insight into pricing, but they have to make pricing decisions? Sure, sure, sure. You know, how do they know they're not pricing too low, too high? Why am I not sure. winning business? What, what are some thoughts there? Sure. Yeah. I talk to, thank you. I love this topic. I talk to business owners every day about pricing um, from entrepreneurs to medium-sized businesses, you know, professional service firms. And, and here's what I have found. And I've been working in professional service firms for 30 years. So I think I have a little bit of insight on this. So there is, there are these sort of antiquated business models that we inherit. And we've been using sort of the same pricing approach 
when we sell, I'm going to specifically talk about B2B and time as opposed to manufacturing because it's okay. a little bit, you know, that's a little different. There's some nuances right. in manufacturing costs and pricing. So, um, you know, you sell time for money. You're an engineer, you're an architect, you're a designer, you're a whatever. Okay. So you're, it's based on that. And we don't, first of all, we just say, okay, it's an hourly rate. We're going to build it out. And everyone approaches um, their uh, uh, billing by cost. What will this cost? What will this project cost me to complete? So the first thing I say is, all right, we'll, we're going to unpack that. What if you switched your mindset and said, what value am I creating for my client? Could I get paid mm -hmm. for that? That's a completely different way to price your services. So it's not just that if this is going to cost me X amount of dollars in hours and manpower, right? A team of 10 people, we're going to do this. We're going to spend 15 months. It's going to be this, blah, blah, blah. Maybe there's some hard costs. That's how I come up with it. Instead of that, am I? how much value am I creating and what is that worth to the client? That's a different kind of pricing conversation when you're negotiating with a, with mm -hmm. a prospect, right? The other part of pricing that I think is interesting in this antiquated model is I stumbled across this formula to take the hourly rate. And most of us take an hourly rate. We're like, okay, we have an employee. We play that employee a certain amount of salary. We're going to mark that up by a certain profitability and we're done. <laughs> you, that is not the way in our common denominator, in our economy now that you can, you can use pricing. You have no operation cost in there. You have no overhead cost in there. You have no true profitability cost in there, right? So I found this incredible formula, which helps you break down an hourly rate to include that information so okay. that you know that you're not just breaking even. You truly are making a profit with every hour that you bill. And I think that it, I bring that, it's a very simple formula, but when I bring it to the table, it blows everyone's mind. It's like, oh my God, I didn't realize that I didn't have all this built in, baked in. I thought I was covering this because, oh, I'm looking at my PL, I'm looking at it quarterly or I'm looking at it at the end of the year. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I think that we're looking at it. We're making those goals. It's break even. Yeah, but you don't really know where you're leaking. You have right. no idea where that leakage is occurring. And when you start breaking it down by employee, you know, knowing that your top employees are really, are your younger employees are, are covering the salaries of those business owners, right? So there's a, there's all that going on. If you're not really looking at that and baking that in, you're walking away from money on the table. And that's not fair. I don't think anyone should do that. Right. So one is you're not actually, even if you were doing a some version of cost plus, like, like you know, law firm, engineering firm, professional service firm. Right. Uh, one is you're not, if you're going to go down that road, then really make sure you understand what that cost basis really is. Yeah, it's not just salary. <laughs> right, right. It's a whole lot of other things that go into it and how it actually gets allocated. Right. And, so and utilized. Go, yeah, and utilized right. by that individual. And and the other side too is talking about value. And and I love that. And I have a, a part my partner, you know, he often says, Well, listen, if 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 somebody had the cure for a disease that your loved one really needed, there's no price that would be too high to pay. Right. Like exactly. the, that the value is there. Now, it's an exaggerated example, but it's the same principle. Exactly. So, you know, uh, I'm thinking of architects. Well, all right. When do they plan on opening this uh, this building for business? Mm -hmm. What are the kind of rents they're going to collect? What is what's at stake for them and their return on on working capital, you know, putting into right. that process? Yeah. If there were a delay, how much money are they going to lose? Right. It's, and there's a lot. Right. I mean, it could be yeah. you could miss a window. You could miss a funding window. There's tons of things. Everything. So meanwhile, you think, 
boy, should we charge 185 an hour or two right. an hour? Right. That's not even the right conversation. No. Now, the however to that, especially for those companies and often, uh, you know, small companies, small and mid-sized companies often make their living selling to large corporates. Correct. So they serve an ecosystem like aerospace in Connecticut or yep. you know, technology in, in California. And so Absolutely. On. So those professional procurement departments at those firms often want to unpack your bid at a very yes. granular level. Yes. So how you know? So so you have all these grand deals. Like we're going to sell the value. We're going to sell. You're, you're yes. building an eighty million dollar thing, and we're a critical part of that. So we want a million dollars. They say, well, what's your rate? What are you paying people? Who are you hiring? So how do you how do you advise somebody to have that value price conversation? with a counterparty that may be really rigid and strict in terms of how they want to process information? Yeah, that's a great question because that's a tough, that is, that's a tough environment. If you're in a bid environment, you're working with the government or to your point with procurement, right? They know, they know what this stuff costs. So I think that um, you do both. I like the gray suit, blue suit analogy. And I don't know if you've ever heard this. Story. No, I haven't. Okay, I'm, okay I'm, this is I'm, great. I'm interested. So <laughs> working in a men's, you know, men's uh, suit, um, very nice high-end uh, store, retail store. A, a prospect comes in and says, okay, I'm looking for a gray suit. Fantastic. Here are all the different cuts. There's a lot of different weights. Do you want wool? Do you want four season? Do you want two? What is it? And so you, you address the gray suit need upfront. You know he wants a gray suit. He's told you that's what he wants, okay? So you take care of that. But just for curiosity's sake, just in case you're curious, I put a blue suit in the dressing room as well. You might want to try it. You may not like it, but I thought in addition to the gray suit, you, you might consider the blue suit as well. Okay. And so that's not to say I'm forcing him to buy two suits. The point is to open the aperture with procurement to say, let me be hundred percent transparent upfront. I don't even want you to have to ask me for that. Let me give you everything I know you're, you're going to want. But in addition, I want to give you that other value add piece that maybe your other vendors, the other people that you work with aren't talking about. They're mm. going to solve your specific problem. That's the way I like to handle that when you're in a tough bid situation, because it's hard. It's difficult to be competitive when you're in that situation. So I love that question. Well, yeah. And it is, it can be, it can be soul crushing actually. Oh God, it's horrible. Yeah. yeah I would, Yeah. I, they're great when you get them, but then sometimes I'm like, you might want to diversify and go into the public sector. Right. Something else because yeah, because you're often dealing and it's designed that way. You're dealing with people that aren't, really no. necessarily excited about what you do or your category no. their job they're is pitting to you against each other so they can get the lowest bid possible right then right. they are the hero right absolutely yep. absolutely so as we look at you know again the world of kind of b2b creating mm -hmm. value and so on if you had to tell an owner looking out at the next year or two you know uncertainties kind of things oh, yeah. seem to be level setting post-covid and so on but you know who knows right um what are two or three things you, you would say to somebody running a, a business today, starting out or, or still a small company? Hey, make sure in the next two or three years that you really focus on mm. fill in the blank. What do you think they should really be focusing on? Okay, so there are like five common blind spots that most mid-sized businesses have when it comes to sales. The first one is 
Um, and we, uh, one of them is pricing. We talked about that. So, mm-hmm. you know, we can, we can put that off the table. That's, that's one of them. The, the, the first one though, typically is they never established any kind of sales process whatsoever. Okay. And that is very common and there is nothing wrong with that. But over time, two things happen. You reinvent the wheel every time you have a new opportunity. Right? right, because you don't necessarily have a process, and when you're small, you don't know who's going to buy you. You're accepting everybody. You're running. You're running fast, right? I I get it. I did it. That's what I did as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. So um, it's really important, even if it's on a napkin, even if you put it in a word document, it doesn't have to be sophisticated. Create a process that's efficient and repeatable, so that you save time to do other things that are also going to generate revenue in your business. And coupled with that, kind of the third thing is. Coupled with that is really get clear on who your target market is. Mm. And I like to say strategy. I read a quote in a Harvard Business Review article that I use uh, every day. Strategy is about saying no. It's about saying what you're not going to do, which is strikes fear in the heart of a business owner because they don't ever want to turn away an opportunity, which I get. But again, you're very inefficient and you cannot really speak to someone's problems if you are talking to everybody and accepting everyone, right? Right. So um, really narrowing your focus. Who is your target market? Who? Where are those segments if you are segmented? And be really focused and just do that like a needle. Don't go everywhere else. And, it, and, it, and at first, it's really scary because you think you're turning all this business away. But in, inevitably, you will build momentum and be able to maintain that momentum if you do that, right? Because now you're very efficient. So um, I always like to tell business owners, automation is great. You should incorporate tools to help you automate the process. But don't rely on that. Because if you rely on that, you're taking the human element out on this relationship building piece, right? And then the last thing in the blind spot is we do not, we have a lot of data. Sometimes we either don't collect it or we really don't take the time to go through it to help us make decisions, right? And we collect a lot of lagging data. Did we make our sales, you know, quota for the quarter? Did we, what was our profitability? That stuff has happened. If you don't use some proactive leading data, what does your pipeline look like? You know, what are your prospects saying? What ch- trends are going on in the industry you could capitalize on, right? Being proactive allows you to be nimble and adjust as things change because, Jose, you and I know they're changing daily. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right? So if you can't, you, you know, once those sales are booked, it's over. But if you're seeing a trend happen in the marketplace and business owners are smart and savvy and nimble, they're, they're seeing that they can then change the approach in order to then either stay relevant or, you know, make more money as right. opposed to losing opportunities. Right. You so, can't, you can't drive down the highway, just staring at your rearview mirror. Oh, you'd be in big trouble. Or you'd be in big trouble. You have to, you have to look forward. I love those five blind spots, uh, in, including no sales process, uh, an ill-defined target market. Yep. Um, don't rely on automation. Make sure your data is forward casting as well. Yep. Uh, yep. I, I love that, Lisa. And Lisa, I'm sure anyone listening to this really got a lot of stuff just in the brief conversation we've had here. Yes. If they wanted to know more about you and what you do, where should they go? Actually, you know, what I would love for you to do is connect with me on LinkedIn. You can find me at Smith Co. Sales, LinkedIn. Smith Co. Sales on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Yeah. Lisa yeah. Smith, thank you so much for stopping by Business Growth on Purpose. We really appreciate it. Oh, it was great. Thank you for having me, Jose. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of Business Growth on Purpose. If you like the show, hit subscribe and leave us a review to help other people find the podcast. And if you're ready to take the next step in driving intentional growth for your business, come check out what we're doing at valueprop.com. We've developed industry-leading programs and systems to help B2B owners take control of their growth. Until then, thanks for listening to another episode of Business Growth on Purpose.